And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to the Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Conor Matcher. I'm the Deputy Political Editor at the paper. With me, as per usual, we have political editor Alistair Grant and politics correspondent Hannah Brown and also our brand new, definitely not thrown in at the deep end, world editor, um, Jane Bradley, <laughs> who's joining us this week as well. Um, because fundamentally there is only one story around at the minute, which is the war in Ukraine, uh, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and Vladimir Putin. Uh, Jane, it's been a mad week since it all really kicked off. Can you give us a a flavour of of what the situation is at the minute? Yeah, I mean, in Ukraine, cities are still coming under fire. There was um, air raid sirens going off in Kiev this morning. Um, People have been hoping to an end of the two-day curfew in Kiev. Um, they came out of their bunkers for the first time in two days. There was queues at supermarkets. And then after half an hour, air raid sirens went off and everybody had to had to go back underground again. I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting about that is that there are all these underground bunkers people are hiding in. You know, it's something that we wouldn't have. Most countries wouldn't have. They, they are prepared for this. There are people in metro stations, but there's also bunkers underneath things like schools, kindergartens. People are just are just hiding out wherever they can. The big thing with this at the minute is obviously the human aspect, and you've done a lot of chatting with people coming across the borders, you know, trying to escape Ukraine. You know, what it's, it's kind of, I mean, anyone listening to this podcast is going to be following this minute, almost minute by minute. That's certainly, you know, how I've been doing it and how, how others have. But the, the human impact really can't be underestimated, can it? No, absolutely. I mean, I've spoken to people at the weekend. I, I spoke to one woman who is hiding out in a, a metro a metro station platform in Kharkiv, which is uh, the second biggest city in Ukraine. You know, until Wednesday night, her life was completely normal. She went to work on Wednesday. She came home about seven o'clock, she said. She said she, she wished she'd, she'd bought some takeaway sushi on the way home because that's what she was planning on doing. And then she didn't get around to it went home, ate something else, went to bed and now regrets not having, you know, she said that, she said, you know, that's what I keep thinking about, that sushi I didn't have, you know, and she's just a normal life. That could have been any of us on Wednesday night, you know, and then suddenly the last four days, she's she's underground in a metro station with hundreds and hundreds of other people. I mean, you know, the pictures she sent me, the video footage, it looks like the Blitz in London, you know, in, in 1940. It's just absolutely crazy. It's unimaginable. I mean, a week ago, it would have been unimaginable. Um, she's got her 82-year-old grandmother with her. Um, who's also just having to sleep on the floor on top of a pile of blankets. She's with her mother and her brother and her her sister-in-law, but um, her father was, I think, at work in um, Kiev. So, you know, that's hundreds of miles away. She doesn't really know what's what's happening to him, you know, how he is. 
it's you know it's just such a horrible situation and you know the same thing that she's describing is happening to you know hundreds of thousands of people across the country the scottish people out there who are you know perhaps married to um somebody from ukraine has lived there for a long time there was one man ken stewart i spoke to earlier in the week he wasn't sure at that point what he was going to do he's got a a three-year-old he's got a newborn baby who's just two weeks old his wife's just been discharged from hospital after cesarean section which is major surgery she's supposed to be you know lying in bed recovering and suddenly wars broken out they decided to get in the car and drive to the polish border and um, they were stuck there for over 24 hours. I think last last county said it was 27, 28 hours. And I mean, imagine just being in a car with a toddler and a newborn baby for that amount of time. You can't get food. You're stuck in a traffic queue. You can't just go somewhere. And he's finally, they finally managed to get across the Polish border and are now in a hotel in Poland and are you know, now working on getting a visa for his wife, his Ukrainian-born wife, to get home to Scotland, which is not as easy as it should be. I know, Hannah, you were you were writing about that this morning, that, you know, it's, it, the government has not made it easy. Yeah, and especially with kind of Nicola Sturgeon urging the UK government to lift visa requirements for all Ukrainian people. I mean, we've not really seen much movement from the UK government on that. I think there was a plan cooking, according to in-government sources. But yeah, it's it's really interesting to hear, Jane, kind of people struggling with that. Have you kind of heard from people on the ground with this issue? I think it's because of the family migration visa. It's basically a British national family member must be one of the following, like a spouse or a civil partner, an unmarried partner. So that means like certain people such as brothers or sisters might not be getting back in to the UK on the basis of this. So it's not just close family members. Close family members are being kind of taken out of this and not being allowed in the UK. Have you heard from kind of people on the ground about this? Yeah, I mean, but in, even in the situation where it is a spouse, so in, in Mr Stewart's case, you know, he, he is a British citizen. Um, I assume it's, I think his children have or the right to British passports. Obviously, the two month, the two week old probably hasn't got a passport yet. But yeah, I mean, his, his wife is Ukrainian, so she has the right to come over on on that visa, but it's getting it processed. I mean, they, they as soon as they realised things were sort of starting to be unsettled in the region, they started looking into how they could get her a visa. But I mean, they've lived there their whole married life. They had no intention of coming back to Scotland until this happened. So they started looking into how they could process her visa and were given an appointment at the British Embassy in Kiev um, on the day that uh, Putin invaded. So, you know, I mean, I spoke to him that day and he said, Obviously, the British embassy is not going to be open. We can't go and get this visa processed. Um, there was another family I spoke to who were Belarusian or the, the, the wife was Belarusian, the uh, the husband was Scottish. And she'd been just visiting her parents. She just visited, visiting her family with their, with their child, couldn't get back. And basically, she's been living in Scotland for the past six years. But because there was some glitch with the biometrics on her Settle, you know, a, a card that sort of says she's got the right to be settled in the UK. She, she has all the right paperwork. But when it was given out to her, they said to her, it's fine, you know, you can, it, it's all digitally linked. It'll be linked to your Belarusian passport. You know, the, your, your right to remain in the UK is on that. When she got to the airport, she showed that to the uh, the officials at the airport, or the, sorry, the, the airline at the airport, and Ryanair said, no, we're not letting you on without a physical card. So even people who actually have the visas to come back, it's not easy for them to do that. I think one of the things is that's interesting about this conflict from from one point of view is the we, we we heard a lot of 
intelligence briefing from, in particular, the US, but also from the UK side of slowly ratcheting up tensions. You know, there was there were briefings back all the way in, I think, November of last year of potential invasion of, of, of Ukraine by Russia and uh, talks about Putin slowly building up the forces on the border with Ukraine. But even so, the kind of final decision and the final move to actually invade last week seems to have taken most people in Ukraine by surprise. Is that is that kind of shared by people who actually live in Kiev and places like that? Is Did it come as a shock? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you've got to remember that obviously everyone in Ukraine has been living with the kind of prospect of war for so long. You know, I mean, there was conflict in 2014. Um, you know, we obviously saw the annexation of Crimea. We've obviously seen um, the breakaway republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, all that's been going on for such a long time that I suppose it's the boy that cried wolf in a way. You know, there's been there's been talk of it was going to happen and they sort of think, oh, well, you know, this has just been, been going on for so long. And people in Ukraine kept saying to me a few weeks ago, you know, like people keep saying, is Putin going to invade Ukraine? He's already invaded Ukraine. He's, you know, it's not new for us. Everyone's getting, the West's getting all very excited about it suddenly and it, it's not a new thing. So I think people just assumed it was going to continue on as it was for, for such a long time that when it was such a immediate and sort of widespread attack, you know, I mean, I think they were expecting that perhaps there would be a bit more of a conflict in the East, in Donetsk and Luhansk, and then that might sort of encroach slightly over the existing borders but then, you know, Thursday morning, it was just suddenly an attack across the whole of the country. I spoke to someone living in the, the the west of Ukraine on Thursday morning, and I mean, he just couldn't believe it. He said this was the last place they expected there to be any problems. You know, they were preparing for refugees from the east. He said his children's school was, you know, looking at what rooms they could open up to, to host people coming from the east. But just a few kilometres away from where he was, there'd been an attack on an airport. So he, they weren't expecting that, apart from in the east of Ukraine. Maybe people were already there. And I'm right in thinking that Kiev is north, northeast-ish, yeah. just south of Chernobyl, and you've got Lviv is the, the second city, isn't it? Of Kharkiv. Kharkiv is on the east, and then Lviv is in the west, and that, yeah. that that's where they were kind of expecting almost some of the government to decant to if if it, yeah. if it yeah. came to, and yet that's even under attack by exactly. By I mean, the, the, the west was was seen as a as a safe place. It was seen as somewhere that wasn't going to be involved in this. You know, any Ukrainians I spoke to a couple of weeks ago who had family in those kind of areas. You know, I spoke to one man who lives in Edinburgh whose family was in the west. He said, "Oh, obviously, my family won't be affected by this, but we're worried about the economic fallout. You know, if there's a conflict in the east, there might be problems with." The economy, there might be problems with food supply, things like that. So we're concerned about that. But they weren't concerned that there was actually going to be bombs anywhere near them. And that's taken everybody by surprise. And as well, I mean, this morning, we're, we're, this podcast will come out um, on Tuesday morning for, for you at home listening. But um, as we're speaking, talks have begun in Belarus between negotiators for for Ukraine and, and, um, and Russia um, the BBC saying that expectations are not high. I don't think uh, any of us have any intelligence to suggest otherwise. We'll come to this to the sanctions that have come from the EU and and the US side side shortly. But is there any end in sight, Jane? Do you think at the minute, or could could this go on or not? There's been a lot of talk that this invasion has gone badly for Vladimir Putin in Russia, but that presumably raises the prospect of a longer and bloodier conflict. It well could be. It's it's almost impossible to see what is going to happen. What we're hearing here is that it's gone badly. What Russians are hearing from Russian television is the exact opposite. 
So, you know, I mean, we're obviously much more likely to, to believe what we're hearing. But, you know, without being there, without actually being involved in the intelligence, it's very difficult to know. I mean, the UK government's played down Putin's nuclear threat this morning, saying, you know, it's a bit of a distraction. But, you know, part of you thinks, well, they would say that. They don't want us all to start panicking and think that there's going to be, you know, a massive nuclear fallout in the next couple of weeks. That's not going to do anyone any good. You know, I mean, you just have to look back at the Second World War and the government messages to keep calm and carry on messages. You know, I mean, we're not going to hear everything that is actually happening. It does seem to have gone badly for Putin. Ukraine's forces don't, do seem to have managed to, to kind of, you know, fight off quite a lot of you know specific attacks. There's also talk that perhaps for some Russian soldiers, their heart isn't in it. But whether that's Ukrainian propaganda to, to, you know, to make people think that, it, it, it's almost impossible to tell. And there's, there's been demonstrations on the streets of Russia, which is an incredibly brave act by anyone doing yeah. that, given the, the significant threats of you know police action, if you, if you dare question the official line. As you say, it's difficult to know, but it does seem as if Putin struggled to sell this war to, to, to the people of, of Russia, at least the people of Russia who, who might live in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Yes, but I think there is, I mean, if, if you look at what's going on on Russian television, on the chat shows and whatever, you know, they're, the politics shows, they're just you know, towing the, the party line of the Kremlin. I mean, and, and that's what normal Russians are being told. We might be hearing, you know, on our sort of bubble Twitter feeds, we might be hearing the odd Russians who are speaking up and are, are brave. And there are some people out demonstrating. There are some people who are speaking out, but there's a lot of people who are not. One of the Ukrainians I spoke to, she said she has friends all around the world because she competes in a sport and a kind of amateur level. And she has friends who she's met from there. And she said people have contacted her from all over the world to sort of check if she's OK, see what's happening. But she said her Russian friends who are, you know, just like her, young women in their early 30s, she knew socially, have said to her, you know, we think our government's doing right. You deserve it. And she said, they're not my friends anymore. You know, I can't believe that they're thinking like this. But this is what they're being told by their media. So there will be a lot of people who who believe what they're being told. And what they're being told is that Ukraine is run by Nazis, which <laughs> it's an absolutely bizarre allegation. I mean, not least because President Zelensky himself, I believe, is Jewish. So it seems very unlikely he's a Nazi. But I mean, that's what they're being told. And, and a lot of people are believing this. In Belarus, there are, there are um, people protesting as well. I mean, I saw footage last night of people sort of shouting out of their apartment windows, sort of, you know, power to Ukraine, things like that, which is, again, very, very brave. I mean, in Belarus... People don't dare speak out about anything at all. It, it's Europe's last dictatorship. The, the president there, the dictator there, is is very, very pro-Russian. He's basically Putin's only supporter at the moment. There are people who are brave in speaking out, but I think we've got to remember about the silent majority. Let's talk as well about this. You, you mentioned it earlier, but the nuclear special alert that was announced by Vladimir Putin on, on Sunday, which ironically has been blamed on Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, for, you know, potentially ill-judged, in inverted commas, quotes about the possibility of NATO troops on the ground in Ukraine. But the, this is arguably the closest, or at least the most dangerous moment in, in, in the history of nuclear warfare since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Can you take us through, Jane, what Putin's kind of threat means? You know, the, 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 the general intelligence seems to suggest that this is a escalatory step to stop further escalation from from the US side and he's not got his finger over the button um but i don't I, you know what 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 seems to be the the view yeah i mean he he's saying it i mean everybody hopes that he's saying it as a threat and he's he's doing it as you say to try and you know scare people off and 
you know, maybe prevent further sanctions, make people sort of step back and go, oh, you know, wait a minute, we don't want this to happen. Um, but I don't think we know what's going on in Putin's mind. I'm not sure anybody knows what's going on in Putin's mind. I mean, he seems to have distanced himself even from his own sort of senior advisors, senior aides. I mean, even when you see the, the physical pictures, he seems very, very scared of COVID. And, you know, you saw the pictures from a couple of days ago where he had a meeting with some of his, his most senior advisors and he's sitting, you know, five metres from them at the end of a table. I mean, he, he doesn't seem to have a sort of close inner circle of people who you could hope have any kind of sense and are maybe sort of talking sense into his ear. He just has a few formal meetings with people from a five metre distance. And I'm not sure at that point, you know, how people can get through to him, how anyone can get through to him. So he's, he's increasingly isolated, both politically, but also personally. Um, and that's not a very... I suppose safe position for someone with his power to be in. And, and can you take us through the sanctions that that have been kind of proposed and put in place against Russia by the EU? Um, there was a raft of sanctions announced, I think, over the weekend. Some of which are the strongest we've seen from from the EU against Russia and against aggressors for for decades. Yeah, I mean, the main one, the big one was uh, late on Saturday night, it was announced that the EU Commission would recommend, along with the UK, along with the US and Canada, that some Russian banks be banned from the SWIFT payment system, which is a massive financial sanction. You know, it's it, it's it's crippling for Russia. And that's something that uh, Boris Johnson was pushing for for a few days, but the EU was quite reticent on it, was dragging its heels. Germany particularly has been a little bit reticent for financial sanctions. I mean, I think it feels it's done its bit already because it's put a halt to the um, certification of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, the gas pipeline. Um, so it's kind of feeling like, yeah, we've done our bit. But eventually, you know, it does seem that, that you know, that's, that, that's what happened on, on Saturday night, that it was agreed that these Russian banks would be banned from SWIFT. Now, that's not all Russian banks, it's certain key banks. But I mean, it is going to have a massive, a massive impact. I mean, I think this morning, the, the ruble had already fallen 40%. I mean, that's, that's huge. But it's, it's a difficult line, because that is going to be pitched in Russia as look what the West is doing to you. I mean, when the Russian people have no money, when they're queuing, you know, there's already massive queues at ATMs of people trying to get money out, people trying to change money before the rubles fall even further. But people are going to be really, really badly hit. I mean, you know, apart from the rich oligarchs, you know, Russia's generally not a particularly wealthy country anyway. I mean, sorry, the country is wealthy, but, you know, your average people living in a small Russian town are not wealthy. The financial hits are really going to affect them. And it's, you know, how that is pitched to them will be that the West is doing this to you. The West is forcing you to live in poverty. The fact you couldn't feed your children yesterday was because of what the West's done. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have done it. I mean, the hands are tied a little bit. What can they do? But... It, it could have some some backlash. And do, do, do you think that the West will continue to go further or have they gone as far as they're willing to go? I would be surprised if they go too much further very quickly. But I mean, obviously, there will be other options that they're, you know, that they're, they're hopefully considering, but will keep in reserve. I mean, obviously, not all the Russian banks have been banned from SWIFT. They could go further and, and ban more banks. We don't know yet. We'll just have to wait and see. And Alistair, there's been a, a, a significant response, I think, politically in, in Scotland to this. Unsurprisingly so, Nicola Sturgeon has been very loud about her opposition to the conflict and support for Ukraine. But what, what's the situation from a Scotland point of view at the minute? Um, there was announce, an announcement this morning of some aid. Yeah, there was an announcement this morning. So Nicola Sturgeon effectively confirming what she called the initial initial humanitarian aid for Ukraine. So it's £4 million plus the provision of essential medical supplies, things like syringe pumps and bandages. And I think there has been a strong reaction, as there has across the UK. I think probably the 
The key row has been this kind of visa row in terms of Nicola Sturgeon joining the calls of many others to basically call on the UK government to waive visa requirements for Ukrainian people fleeing Ukraine to allow them to kind of put down those barriers they might have if they're trying to enter the UK. And I think Boris Johnson's obviously announced, I think so far, that people with family in the UK will be able to, to, to come into the country, but he's not gone much further than that yet. I think the expectation is that they will go further than that. One of the key things as well is with these economic sanctions on Russia and stuff like uh, the kind of sanctions that have been rolled out by the, the UK, the US, uh, the EU, I think these things will have an impact on the UK as well. Because, I mean, Russia is one of the, I think it is the world's top supplier or one of the world's top suppliers of oil and gas, um, particularly into Europe, not, not so much into the UK, but the, the kind of worldwide global market in these things will have an impact in the UK. So I think these these issues, sometimes it sometimes feels like these conflicts are happening in kind of far away in Russia's this place is, you know, quite far away from the UK, but it will start to have an impact. And I think that will have a kind of political impact back home as well. And and Jane, um, obviously there was a, an announcement from the EU, I think, last night as well on visas. And it does seem like the UK, in terms of European countries more jet, more more broadly, rather than just EU countries, is is a bit of an outlier in how it's how it's dealing with what is fundamentally a refugee and a humanitarian crisis? A lot of the, a lot of Eastern European countries, there is a lot more immigration now, but they're not used to immigrants coming from a wide variety of countries. So when the Middle East refugee crisis happened, I guess there was fear, there was elements of racism. And the fact that this has happened now, I suppose there is just a feeling that, you know, this could be us. It feels a lot. It, it is physically a lot closer to home. That, that's not justifying it. It's you know, it's it's not to say that's how things should be. But yeah, I mean, I think I think there definitely is 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 a feeling of that. Sorry, just to add, there's a big issue with how the media represent this as well, isn't it? That we've got a duty to kind of make sure that we're not just displaying that these people who are who look as has been reported in the media. Uh, to, to look more sympathetic to these people, they look more European. It's almost as if we're trying to make it out to be well. A lot, a lot of the parts of the media are trying to make it out to look as if we should be more empathetic to these people, like you said, Jane. And a part of it is like we should just view that these people are people and they need help and they need refuge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of news journalism one hundred and one, isn't it? It's you know a person breaking their leg next door is the same as you know a hundred people killed in um you know the next neighboring country is the same as you know a thousand people killed in a country far away it's people people are by nature interested in something if they feel that it could happen to them and the more like them the people are it's not fair it's not right but people feel people feel scared by it i suppose and i mean in in a completely legitimate sense countries that are boarding, bordering ukraine are worried especially the countries that are you know former soviet countries i mean romania was never a soviet country but moldova for example was um they're worried about what happens to them next you know what's what's what are putin's plans will a country like moldova and obviously not, not a country that borders um but georgia is obviously concerned about you know what's going to mean for them um there's obviously worry about the future of the region generally. And I suppose, you know, following up from that, it's a, it's a big, it's potentially a very big shift in global geopolitics. I mean, there's, there was an astonishing threat from from Russia to Finland and and Sweden, I think it was, about the, the risk of them, you know, joining NATO. Estonia, similarly, 
have, have had to kind of reassure their citizens of, of a lack of threat. Do, do you see this, Jane, as a lot of analysts have suggested that, that this conflict is, you know, a turning point in how Russia will view itself in the future going forward and how the West, at the very least, views NATO. We've had decades of relative peace where NATO has been used as a deterrent for um for 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 war and we're now at a position where Russia sees NATO more more as ever a threat to its security whether or not those security concerns are valid i don't think is that's a classic russian you know talk talking point but it does feel like we're at a turning point in terms of of how how the the global world order sits and how it approaches these problems yeah absolutely and i think one of the things is that other countries are going to be watching how the, re- the West reacts, you know, I mean, if the West sat by and did absolutely nothing about Putin invading Ukraine, you know, what is China going to think about Taiwan? You know, what there's going to be other countries looking at, you know, how this plays out and what that means for for their futures as well. I mean, it, it, it is a major turning point in in the sort of power struggle, really. And and going back to, to visas and, and that sort of issue, I'm... Um, I mean, Alistair, I, I, I don't know about you, but I was astonished to see that the, the UK government line on visas hadn't changed over the weekend. After the, I think there was a, a, a very misjudged tweet from Kevin Foster, I think MP, you know, saying, you know, you can come to come to the UK if you want to pick vegetables. Do you, do you think that? You know, this has been a bit of a PR error. I know we talk about PR errors in a in a in an era of war, isn't particularly good. But the UK government seems to have not read the mood of the country quite yet. I mean, certainly that tweet was a PR error. I think he essentially, I can't remember the wording of it, but it was something about pointing out that the routes that he was saying are currently available for people fleeing Ukraine. I think one of the examples he used was, yeah, that seasonal visa that is often associated with uh, kind of summer workers coming over and, yeah, fruit picking. And I think it's surprising in the sense that, you know, you've got the EU that has taken you know, these quite remarkable measures, quite unprecedented. You've got a lot of political and social pressure on them to go further, a lot of solidarity with the people of Ukraine. You know, it's a country of 44 million people or something around that. So we could be looking at potentially a, a really big refugee crisis. And it's something that I think countries will have to will have to grapple with. And that includes the UK. So it is, it is a bit surprising. But as I say, I'd be very surprised if their current uh, position holds for much longer. You know, I think they're going to have to, and I think they will want to themselves go a bit further, at least provide a bit more clarity in this. I think Tom Tugendhat did mention that he thought that the UK government would end up following the EU policy of kind of allowing um, all member countries to take in Ukrainian refugees for up to three years without asking them to first apply for asylum. So it's, I think it is probably something that they will be considering in the days ahead. And, and Jane, I mean, for, for our listeners at home, all of this is, you know, it can be quite scary. It can be quite overwhelming. I don't, I, I don't know about you, you, you guys, but it's been quite overwhelming watching it and hearing about it and, you know, differing degrees of fear about what could happen next and to people on the ground. But what can people in Scotland doing and listening to our podcast do to kind of help people in Ukraine at the minute? I think there are some grassroots um aid organisations um, springing into action. You know, I know some friends were telling me last night, you know, they'd put together a few bags of clothes and things they were taking um, 
that are going to be going to be shipped out there. People can feel like they're actually, you know, actually doing something. The same happened when there was the uh, the Middle Eastern refugee crisis a few years ago. There was lots of Scottish organisations, you know, really did a lot. So people can take action with that. I think people in Ukraine, although it does seem in some ways paying lip service to it, and we all, you know, I, I mean, I'm the first to complain about social media activism. I usually think it's absolutely pointless. But I mean, I think people in Ukraine are very much connected to their social media. You know, the people I've spoken to there, that's one of the things that they're most worried about, that, you know, they get cut off. They, you know, they don't have any batteries for their phones in the, you know, the underground bunkers. They're, you know, one, one woman I spoke to was nipping out to her flat during the hours of, you know, the daylight hours to charge her phone because she just needs to be connected. So social media activism in this way is giving people hope. You know, she said seeing messages of support from friends and from you know, from just people on online saying that countries are standing behind Ukraine, that does make people, it gives them a boost. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to sit here and you do feel helpless and what, what can you do? But I mean, there are small things you can do to, to, to show your support. And there's, it's, it's worth us mentioning, uh, you mentioned social media and it's worth us talking about what the, what the EU have, have said about um, the disinformation channels that Russia use. Um, they're they're going to sanction in some way, I'm not quite sure what, how, they're going to sanction uh, Russia RT, formerly Russia Today. And there is obviously one massive, you know, Scottish shaped elephant in the room in that regard. In fact, there's two um, in the shape of Alex Salmond and George Galloway. Now, George Galloway, everybody everybody is aware has been a, a an RT propagandist for for years and is is a significant part of the disinformation uh, you know sphere of 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 Russia in, in Scotland but Alistair we had this week or last week even a growing condemnation of Alex Salmon's decision to to continue his show on on RT the Alex Salmon show only for him on Thursday to say he suspended it and in a 300 word statement not criticise Putin or mention him at all. Scotland is known as a relatively resilient country to disinformation, but you know it's got two significant political figures who see it as acceptable to be on RT. What what what's the future going to be for for Alex Salmon? Do you think, and and to a lesser extent, George Galloway going forward? <laughs> uh, it's a difficult question to answer. I think I think the EU has actually gone so far as to ban Sputnik in Russia today. Um, but I think, I mean, I'm no expert in this, obviously. I think one of the difficulties, the fears that people have around this is that if you go down that route of banning them in the UK, that would have to be done through Ofcom. The fear is that they would retaliate in some way by maybe uh, kicking the BBC out of Russia, for example, which is something that no one wants to happen. I think for Alex Salmond, I think with George Galloway, to be honest, it was less surprising that he has gone down this route. Uh, I think Alex Salmond did cause a lot of uh, a lot of you know, surprise among his former supporters when he announced that he had this chat show on, uh, on RT. Uh, and it's been a long-running issue in Scottish politics. He's been called, you know, repeatedly to to quit his chat show. A lot of, you know, opposition politicians, people like the Scottish Liberal Democrats have been leading the charge in this. Alex Cole Hamilton, the Scottish Lib Dem leader, calling him, you know, Putin's useful idiot. Uh, and I think, as you said, Alex Sanders announced he's suspending his show. I don't know what the future is. I think a lot of people would like to think that he would make the decision that it's com- completely you know, it seems extremely hard for him to justify continuing this show. But then again, he's he's been doing it for years now and he's been ignoring the criticism. His position has always been that there's been no editorial in, interference from RT on his show. His show just runs in the channel. But I think from an observer's point of view, I think it's always been quite obvious that Alex Salmon would much have preferred to have that show on a channel like the BBC, STV, anything but RT. And uh, he's essentially got himself into 
a situation where he's he's finding it hard to back down. But yeah, I think most people would think he, he should. Absolutely. Well, th- thank you all for, for joining us this week. Who knows what the situation in Ukraine is going to be like by the time we come back to the podcast next week. Uh, Jane, thank you very much for joining us this week as well. And do keep on reading The Scotsman and keeping up with Jane's cracking reporting about the impact of all of this on the people on the ground. But thank you all. Uh, thank you very much for listening. The Steamy, a laudable production for The Scotsman.